Hello, everybody. So today is June 5th, and we are bringing you Block Digest number 179 at block height 579,393. What is up today, Rick? Well, it certainly is June, man. I had to look at that again twice, but it does feel like it. Summer is starting to creep in, and hey, I'm all right with that. Time to get out there and get on those mountain slopes. How about you, Janine? How are you doing today? I'm melting, melting. <laughs> you know, Para, I know you've had an exciting day. How, how are you doing today, man? I'm doing pretty well, too. Uh, did, you, did you guys just lost me? No, no, you're here with us. Oh, all right. So, yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well. I just had a baby and things, so I guess I cannot even do better. <laughs> Congratulations, Nopar. Man, that's awesome to hear. I'm glad we're going to yeah. have Papa Nopar in the house. That's awesome. So how does it feel to know that your life is over for the next 18 years? Yeah. That's... <laughs> <laughs> Do not tell your partner that. <laughs> well, I mean... It's pretty silent most of the time, so I guess I will be able to quote properly. Uh, we'll see. Yeah, and to are be going, honest, are you, like uh, I've you, heard that really when your life just starts, you're you're starting a new life here. Are you gonna name it with Saw Baby? <laughs> Carlos, Carlos. <laughs> Welcome to the world, Carlos. <clears throat> No, it's it's not Carlos. I was referring to BitConnect Carlos. No, it's actually Nicolas after Nicolas Dorier, the C sharp dot net developer. Wow. Yeah, that's that's gotta be an an awesome feeling there, Nicholas. And yeah, welcome other Nicholas into the world. That's awesome. And yeah, just really uh congratulations to you and your uh, other better half or other half there and you know, yeah. I just uh, hope everything goes well and y'all just, uh, yeah. I mean, like, that's an experience okay. I'm going to have one day, but we'll see. I'm, I've heard lots of great things, so I'm sure it'll be great. Okay, Fallacy Monster is here in the chat and just told you to name your child Roger. Fallacy Monster, you are going to push <laughs> me today to break our not banning people policy. You're going to get your ass banned with that kind of talk. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be Craig. <laughs> all right let's go into the first topic i'm the first one am i with chainalysis yep. yes sir so Ch chainalysis had a had the webinar again but uh, and i missed it again but 
but this time they sent a recording uh, to those who missed it. So I was able to to go through it. And this is about who's behind the ransomware attacks. And I think I just want to go through some interesting things and not just give you the whole presentation. And one of the interesting thing was in there that uh, one of the most dominant, if, if not the most dominant ransomware that they identified is NatPetya, which was actually not a ransomware because they didn't take the money or they had no way to, to get the money. So it was, they think it was probably a Russian attack. So it's interesting that like, you know, now you have this software that doesn't even require Bitcoin and you call it ransomware. So Bitcoin's reputation is going to the trash because of this, uh, the most dominant one. <laughs> Anyway, a couple of statistics. Every 14 seconds, a new organization will fall in victim for a ransomware attack in 2019. Every 14 seconds. That's uh, interesting statistics there. 1.5 million phishing sites created every month in 2019, which is a lot, but you know, like, these sites are popping up and no one's using them, I, I, I guess, I hope. Uh, <clears throat> and then comes the part that who is behind, which, which is actually quite interesting. Uh, they were saying that although China and, and uh, Nigeria and this kind of uh, nations are present very, very dominant in the, in the space, in the, the the black markets and stuff like that, the ransomwares are actually from Eastern Europe, <laughs> which is which is quite interesting because I'm from there and their justification actually fits well because what they are saying is that uh, people are very well educated in Eastern Europe and when they are getting out of university with a degree, they they don't have opportunities with their good education. So they either go and do something on the black market or or, or get a job for, for low paying money. And that's actually something I, I noticed too. And it's, as you would say, it's sad, but in Wasabi it's also an opportunity because we know a lot of people who are interested in working, who, who are who are very skilled and would like to work in and able to like go with a, not a Silicon Valley salary. So that's it. And this is one type. And the other type they identified is the state actors, uh, which was China, North Korea, and Russia. Uh, they don't know exactly if they were state actors, but the patterns fit very well that they are, it's very, very likely that state actors are doing these ransomware attacks. Uh, <clears throat> so that's interesting there. Who, who, are, who are the victims? There is a trend, there was a trend that they were just creating these ransomware and the victims were anyone who downloaded the software and they pay a little bit, but it seems like they are getting more sophisticated and getting more targeted. Uh, 
how. So companies with sensitive data, what well, is the number one target? And companies with high value like banks, companies with sensitive data, that's, that's interesting because they fail to mention that the best way to protect your data is to not even collect it. But anyway, uh, accountants are also one of the biggest targets of ransomware. Uh, one of one of the campaigns was that uh, there are popular accountant websites and they they started spreading their links there. And so because accountants are actually keeping really sensitive information, they are they are going to they are going to be pretty good targets for that. And accountants, you know, they are not very techy. So that's it. Two more things left. One is the cash out strategies. You might heard about me talking about this, but this is specifically the cash out strategies of ransomware att uh, attackers. 63.7% are not mixing or not doing anything. They're just sending directly to exchanges, which is, <laughs> well, you are able to to write a write a software like that, but not able to properly cash out. That's that's kind of uh, stupid. And only twelve percent are mixing. The rest is spending on dark net markets and things like that. Uh, and and the last thing I I want to I want to say is that they actually sug suggested to not pay the ransomware attacks if you if falling victims which I think is just irresponsible, you know, uh, because the best way you, you will be able to handle this situation is to pay, not by not paying, uh, because you're risking to losing your data. And I think that wraps it up. I think it was a very good presentation. Um, they had data. They mostly had sources, but of course they are protecting their sources. So yeah, so they mostly didn't have sources, but they they, they sometimes put sources, which which was more than than usual. So it's a good tendency there. I, I liked it. Oh, it was Kim Grauer who who did the rest of the presentations, and. And maybe one more thing I would like to mention is that during the presentation they were talking about stuff that how many how many people how many organizations they are collaborating with it and 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 my my I just realized that how large this business is this channel is it's it's a it's a huge huge company it's. It's actually a bit terrifying, to be honest. All right, that's about it. Any thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, you know, nowadays I am really hesitant to believe any kind of analysis that tries to fingerprint something as a state actor. I mean, given just the like one, the, the Vault 7 leak showing people intentionally creating fingerprints to look like other nation states just 
the increasing sophistication of private operations and strategically the the idea of trying to as an independent actor blend in as a, a nation state actor just because that creates a a little more delicate of a situation in attempting to actually deal with something and i mean but you know regardless of the source of these attacks i mean it's it is creating a nice uh price floor somewhere <laughs> if these attacks start picking up and really the only actual option is to pay up <laughs> right that's where it's like uh this option of don't pay i mean like uh we've seen articles about security companies that handle ransomware attacks and they say like payment is the only option it's what's what they do to handle this and yeah, I mean, it's crazy to see, see here like 14 seconds, every every 14 seconds, there's a ransomware attack and 1.5 million phishing sites a month. That's pretty huge. But I imagine it has to have been ramped up with the takedown of the darknet structure, like uh, the Deep Dot Web, Wall Street, Dream Market, Alpha Bay, all these guys. And now you have a bunch of this, uh, you know, dark market out there that is searching for where's the next place to move to. And now you got to deal with all this stuff out there. I mean, but like you're saying, I mean, it's targeted. I mean, it's a, yeah, it's a weird landscape to look at for sure. I mean, just do your best to avoid all types of malware people. Yeah. You know, don't collect data that you don't need to collect. That's, that's it. Just, just don't, if you don't need it, then, It's, it's sad because it's just the whole Silicon Valley industry is built upon this idea of, of not making profits and selling the data and uh, raising investments. And what they actually told to me, uh, I mean, as advisors that, hey, you should, you should keep your source code closed because that's how you can raise investment if you, if you keep these traditional practices like so, like closed source code and try to protect your IP and, and all these kind of things. That's what the investors actually want. You know, they, they don't want a completely open company. Uh, some, somehow the incentives are a bit misaligned. Well, I mean, it's, you know, a lot of people, and especially this is probably a bad topic to bring this up during given chain analysis but i mean i really don't think things are so black and white in terms of things needing to be open source and closed source being bad i mean like for instance um you know if you have some kind of wallet software that interacts with a server that's architected in a way where like it's impossible for you to lose money if the wallet you're using is functioning properly like you can open source that wallet and keep the server closed source and it's not there's not really an issue at least that i have with that because you're open sourcing enough of it for the user to verify that this is going to work properly and i can't lose money and so it really doesn't matter that i can't see the source code for the server because there's no way for it to do anything improper that could lose me money you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. 
in, in fact, actually, I, when I designed Zero Link, I had a, I, I had a, on the denial of service attack protection, I had a technique that actually, you know, just close source the server because then it's going to be much harder to DOS attack the server. You have to reverse engineer it instead of, you know, just giving, uh, giving the code in a golden plate to you. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, that, there are definitely some, some, some interesting things there. Uh, but, but they, there are technical reasons to close source something. Okay, you would say that obscurity by design is a bad design, but uh, you know you, you don't want to make it easier for for other people to attack your software. Um, but, but what I wanted to say is that there are technical reasons for closed sourcing, like like the medical devices are are pretty like that's that's another thing where you you want to to be to make that secure that uh, you, you want to make it closed source because it's it's like you, you really can't afford to get hacked you know and but but my problem is with the investment side of the things that if you have closed source stuff then you you are more likely to get investment because closed source just I don't know, it just means more. And in reality, what I noticed in the open source is that it doesn't matter if you're open source or not. It doesn't matter if you give your ideas to everyone in the world. No one is going to act on it. You see, there is the Wasabi backend server and just no one cares enough to, to set up one and, and do anything with it. And not just that, but also there is the there is the advantage of you know they they don't understand how it works. They don't know how to maintain, and it's really hard to maintain other people's code. You know, so it, it, it's I think it's Microsoft already realized. I don't know how much you know about it. But Microsoft these days just keep open sourcing everything, like like. Even surprisingly to me, <laughs> so open source is the future. That's that's for sure. But there are some technical reasons to not open source something. Uh, <clears throat> that would be my point. Mm -hmm. All right. So I guess I don't know if uh, any more comments on this, or should we pass it off to Janine? Well, I could actually. I mean, I think there's people that could make an argument even for medical devices to use open source code because there's been a number of instances where um, either the company goes out of business or they're just not very good at doing, you know, security updates. And there are plenty of people who are willing to, you know, go in there and make those updates. But because, you know, all of the code is so closed down and the update processes are very tight, they're not able to do that. And so you end up having people with like pacemakers, for instance, that, you know, have security vulnerabilities that they can't fix because it's all controlled by that one company that isn't doing their job well. Yeah, but I mean, that's an instance where something malfunctioning can actually harm somebody. Like, there are, like, types of things where there's not really anything 
that can go wrong in a way that harms people. And I mean, in a lot of those cases, like it, it makes economic sense to keep that closed sourced. I mean, just, you know, like Nopara is saying, the reason people will invest in something that's closed source is because it's harder for a competitor to swoop in and copy it. It, it really comes down to like the, the specific like products you're talking about and how that interacts with other things and users. Well, yeah, man, like, uh, for sure, I'd like to see some of that Tesla AI get open source one day and see how many cars are running into people. Yeah, you want to take us into the next one, Jeannie? Yeah, so I believe that uh, in the last show, I was saying that May 30th would be a big day for the Assange case, but it turned out that, I mean, it was a big day in a different way, but it turned out that the second procedural hearing at Westminster Magistrates Court lasted about five minutes because Assange himself was not attending. Um, I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but um, there were a number of reports that Assange Assange had been taken into the medical ward of Belmar, Belmarsh Prison. Um, we haven't really gotten any more updates on that beyond, you know, his lawyers confirming that, yes, that he was taken there, but they're not really saying, like, how long he was there. I believe the only statement, uh, it wasn't even the Ministry of Justice, it was another person of the UK government, and they said that he was eating regularly. I think that's all they said. So we don't actually know what his current condition is um, in terms of like why he was taken to the medical ward. But anyway, the hearing, um, because he wasn't there, it was very short. And he was represented by Gareth Pierce, um, who is actually a really famous um, English lawyer. Um, apparently she specializes in defending victims of miscarriages of justice and she spoke on his behalf and then the senior district judge who was presiding was a woman named Emma Louise uh, Arbunat. Not sure how to pronounce her name, but she's a baroness apparently, so maybe I'm offending her. Um, and according to Reuters, when asked about uh, Assange's health, Pierce said that he was, not, he was in fact very far from well. And um, so the third hearing that was originally scheduled by judge snow from before is still um set for june 12th but apparently it's now been moved to the belmarsh magistrates court because this judge uh thought that it would be easier for everyone if it you know took place at a court right next to the prison which i don't know why they didn't think of that before but yeah sounds like a good idea to me and uh, for anyone who has been paying attention to the UK court proceedings, you probably recognized her name because uh, she's been involved in the Assange case before in the UK because in February 2018, she actually ruled against him. Um, I can't remember. I think it was to do with um, whether the arrest warrant in the UK was still justified or the, I can't remember if it was the UK one or the European one, but she ruled against him and she actually said that his fear of extradition to the U.S. was not reasonable, which is really ironic considering she is now, you know, presiding over the extradition hearings. Um, and she also said that, you know, she didn't care about his health problems, which were being reported at that time. Um, and she said they could be much worse. And it's like, well, it's now gotten worse because 
um, one of the interesting thing that, things that happened is uh, on March 31st, the UN um, repertoire on torture, Nils Melsner, um, I, I, he's also a very distinguished uh, Swedish lawyer um, by training. He released, I think he's a lawyer, uh, a lot of legal expertise. He released a statement regarding an evaluation that he conducted himself and along with two medical experts when he went to visit Assange in prison. And he accused the US, the UK, Sweden, and Ecuador. And I think he, I mean, he mentioned Australia in terms of like, you should be protecting your citizen. You're not doing that. Um, but he accused specifically the US, UK, Sweden, and Ecuador of, quote, a relentless and unrestrained campaign of public mobbing, intimidation, and defamation against Mr. Assange, consisting of oppress oppressive isolation, harassment, surveillance, deliberate collective ridicule, insults, humiliation, open instigation of violence, and repeated calls for his assassination, which is most likely referring to the uh, statements made by some politicians in the U.S., and so together with the, um, the opinion of the medical experts who were specialists in examining victims of torture, he concluded that Mr. Assange showed all symptoms typical for prolonged exposure to psychological torture, including extreme stress, chronic anxiety, and intense psychological trauma. And probably one of the most damning statements that he made in that um, review that was published from the UN. He said, in 20 years of work with victims of war, violence, and political persecution, I have never seen a group of democratic states ganging up to deliberately isolate, demonize, and abuse a single individual for such a long time and with so little regard for human dignity and the rule of law. And uh, he then, you know, obviously some UK politicians did not like that, you know, being accused of torture again. And so the UK foreign secretary, Jeremy Hunt um, on Twitter was like, you don't, don't try and get involved in our court process, dude. And then uh, he didn't say dude, but that's how pathetic his statement was. And then um, Nils Melzer actually responded and completely owned him. And I won't go into that for reasons of time, but you can see the full response on my live blog. And the other interesting event that happened uh, just two days ago was that the Uppsala District Court in Sweden made a decision about whether to approve the detention order that was filed by the deputy public prosecutor. Um, and then if they had approved the detention order, they would then proceed with an extradition request. And so the deputy um, of public prosecution reportedly argued that Assange was a flight risk. Uh, but the judge, um, uh, Cusack, uh, felt that that was not necessary because uh, he doesn't need to be detained because he's already in prison. Duh. Uh, so they thought that was, you know, not proportional because it makes no sense. And so um, basically what's going to happen is she's allowed to continue the investigation, but they're not pursuing extradition or, you know, detaining him on behalf of Sweden in addition to being in prison. And so his Swedish lawyer uh, said he was pleased with the decision. Um, there was an Australian barrister called Greg Barnes who said that the prosecutor's request um, in, to detain him illustrates the abandonment of fairness. And then the former president of the Swedish Bar Association, um, which is like the Swedish equivalent of the American Bar Association, 
tweeted that the investigation should finally be closed once and for all. So pretty much, uh, you know, mostly resounding, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, not not approving of what the public prosecution has been trying to do. And it looks like that's going to be blocked. Um, maybe the investigation will be closed as well. Um, and I think uh, since this, uh, our last show of the season will actually happen before the third procedural hearing on June 12th, uh, which is currently scheduled. So um, just be aware that that will um, happen probably during our hiatus. And assuming it takes place, I believe that's the last hearing where they'll actually decide whether to, you know, go ahead with the extradition case. And if it's anything like the Lori Love case, it could go on for easily months, if not years. Uh, so that's all I have for you today. That's crazy. I mean, like those initial reports, whenever he came out of the Ecuadorian embassy, were saying like, oh, he looks much healthier, right? And now uh, just being in uh, custody, I guess, uh, you know, there's been a lot of, um, yeah, some torture being put on him. And it's just crazy the way that we try to act like, oh, you know, we're all about free speech and freedom and liberties and independence. And this sort of public execution is so tyrannical that any one of these tyrannies outside of the West could easily point to this Assange case and just say like, yeah, they say that. But look at this. Look what they're doing. This one person that actually did stand up as much as he could. And, uh, you know, they're not really like that. And it's it's just such a ridiculous uh, stance that we find ourselves in. And it's really hard to, um, you know, try and defend any position that we're in as far as people that are in the United States. I mean, other than, you know, we disagree with the fact that this is going on. Luckily, there are a couple of presidential candidates that totally stand against it. And it probably will. I mean, if it is going on into the years, then we should hear about it in the election here in the U.S. at least a little bit. You see, they, they attacked Assange, uh, but they, they were, people were attacking Assange from time to time. But now that, that he's, he's, he's out and he's in prison now, everyone is attacking in the same time. And that's uh, pretty scary. Yeah, it's really yeah, I, scary. I mean, the, I, it's been the strategy since, uh, let's see, it was a quote from, it was part of the uh, Stratfor emails that were released. It's been a strategy since like 2009, 10, 11, something like that. Like it's been, a, it's been a policy of theirs that they, they don't, the U, even the U.S., they don't really care whether they make a case that they actually have a good chance of winning. All they care about is making a case that will draw out for a very long time so that, you know, WikiLeaks and Assange personally have to expend resources and time and, you know, distract them so that they're not doing important things. So, even even when the case looks like it's completely stupid, like these espionage charges, like the chances, uh, assuming that the UK actually follows their own laws, the chances of the UK extraditing him under the Espionage Act is almost zero. And so people are like, well, why would they add that if there's no chance? Well, the if you understand that the point of you know this extradition request 
like the the primary reason that they're doing it is just to you know occupy his time you know keep him in prison keep him detained uh make him expend legal resources like that's their primary objective if they win that's like a bonus but most of what they're trying to do is just distract people and make them run out of money so that they can't continue to operate um and so the fact that Sweden is, I mean, it's not completely gone, but it's certainly died down with the fact that they don't have their own separate case for extradition uh, at the moment, that, that's a significant help in terms of not distracting his legal team. That's a great point. It makes me even think like, uh, you know, yeah, maybe we'll hear his name brought up in the court as far as in the discussion of the presidential election, but Thinking about WikiLeaks' influence in the 2016 election and the effect that had, I can imagine that this is like, you know, this is all about just trying to keep WikiLeaks out of the next election. Can I, can I jump in? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no. So, <laughs> so I, I just, you know, there are in Hungary people who are stealing bikes. No, but... How do they do that? That's the interesting part. <clears throat> there are three people. The first one cuts the chain. The second one throws the bike into the bush. And the third one takes the bike. Okay, so why it is interesting? Because if you catch any of them, you can't you can't do anything with them because well, he just he just cut the chain. I mean, okay, you pay some fine, whatever. The second one, well, just throw the throw to the bush. Bush is that even a crime? I don't know. Probably. And the third one, well, find the bike and and just take it because he found it. You, you know, so it just they 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 manage the risk very well, and this might be some lesson. It might be a bad analogy because what let, let's say you're stealing a bike from some serial killer or something like that. But it might be a lesson to how to if you are if you are in a position to you you are in a you are a whistleblower, then you might want to cut the chain and stop there and let the let the rest take care by other people. You know what I mean? So in the end everyone would be better off because just no one does that much but you know like what could have Assange done I know it, it would be completely out of character for him because he is just he's way too disciplined for that but like let's just stay silent in the Ecuadorian embassy and hope for the best and and maybe they're gonna, I don't know, you know what I mean, to, to try to start something and continue some, someone else's job in somewhere else and don't do everything by yourself. Uh, that might be some, some, some good strategy in, if, if you are in a position to be a whistleblower or, or even working on Bitcoin privacy. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that's it. Yeah, you always got to calculate the risk whenever you're dealing with this, these levels of forces.
Yeah, and there's one more thing that I want to clear up in general because it came up during the weird Twitter threading with Luke DeJure and Eric Lombroso a few days ago. Um, I believe, well, it wasn't in my thread, but it was one, one of the threads. Luke said that something about, you know, Assange was the one person that Satoshi didn't want to be using Bitcoin. And so I just want to clarify what that's referring to. First of all, Satoshi never said that Assange or WikiLeaks couldn't use Bitcoin. That statement was specifically made, let's see, it would have been December, I can't remember if it was 2010 or two. I think it was 2011, December-ish, um, where oh. uh, that was because, 10, okay. So WikiLeaks was planning, I think they had already, no, they hadn't announced it, but uh, I believe there was discussion that that was when WikiLeaks was going to um, announce that they were accepting Bitcoin because that was when the whole financial blockade was going on. And Satoshi on the uh, forum said, you know, this is a, they're, you know, this is a bad thing because they're going to bring, you know, a whole bunch of attention to us that, it like it's too early for Bitcoin. So he wasn't saying they couldn't use Bitcoin. He was just worried. And I say he, Satoshi, he was worried that um, that that attention that WikiLeaks would bring was going to be too much for, you know, Bitcoin developers to deal with. Uh, and it might, you know, bring, you know, nation state actors trying to target it to bring it down in order to censor WikiLeaks further. So that was the main thing. And actually, Assange ended up agreeing and they didn't they then didn't uh, release a public address until I think June or July the next year. So they waited a, at least a whole year um, or six months, technically. Um, no, yeah. Luke. So no. So, go ahead. So Luke is always doing this. He's he's always saying something very short that's technically correct, but there is a huge context behind it. Like, okay, Satoshi didn't want assigned to use Bitcoin. Yeah, sure, that's technically correct, but the context is that he didn't want because it was too early and then Assange actually respected Satoshi's opinion and didn't even use it just a year later. You, you know, it's uh, just you can't leave out such an important context. Yeah, I saw that tweet too. I was like, what the hell, man? Yeah, that was like, you know, that's a big part of the history of Bitcoin. I think everybody should understand that context if you've been around like that. Uh, Luke thinks some weird things. He, he also thinks that a uh, monarchy would be the best kind of government. Oy. That's all right. He's got some smart thoughts on other things, I guess. You know. Yeah, I mean, I, you know arguing with that with a political opinion that's so different from mine is not really in my interest and i don't care if he doesn't believe in freedom of the press or any of that it's just completely the opposite of my stances but that's not the point that bothers me the point that bothers me is that he tried to make it look like satoshi was against Assange that satoshi even thought he was in a position to say like to a specific person don't use bitcoin yeah, it's pretty crazy. <laughs> All, right. All right, that that thread got really strange, Joe. He's uh, <laughs> gonna leave Bitcoin because because the Bitcoin community didn't respond, and it was actually 
you know, like, what do you do? Links, links like 10, 12 people in the Bitcoin community and let's do something. Uh, yeah, sure. But you know what? It's like literally the highest powers are going after him and what can you do? Uh, you, you can agree. You can. Yeah, you are less seriously naive there. It's it's so it's so helpless. Like, and then getting angry and trying to guilt you to what are you? And if you don't have a good suggestion, then you just don't say it. I think that's the right way to behave. Mm-hmm. Alrighty, though, uh, we have spent 40 minutes on two stories, though, so it is time to move along. All right, man. Well, tell us about this U tree, U tree XO. All right, so uh, U tree XO is actually got a final paper dropped now, although uh, this is something we've talked about before. I figured we'd go a little more in depth into things given how much detail uh, the paper really goes into. Uh, so the the general uh, gist of the idea is effectively committing to the UTXO set, but in a, in a way that is not um, a consensus rule. So the, this is not like committed to in, in a block. This is not enforced that... Uh, commitments have to be included in a block correctly or the block is invalid. This is effectively an entirely user um, an application layer uh, protocol here. But, you know, simply said, you would effectively build a Merkle tree of each output in the UTXO set and in ordering this, you, you would kind of tend to leave older ones off to the left. So the, the longer a UTXO exists unspent, it kind of gets pushed more and more to the left side of the tree. And, you know, the, the smaller, um, shorter, not, not smaller, actually, they, they could be of any size, but the, the shorter lived UTXOs kind of stay on the right side of the tree and would be in very short Merkle trees compared to the the left side where things kind of get condensed into bigger and deeper trees with all of the old UTXOs in it. And the reason for this is because a lot, I think think 40% was the the figure um, on Tage's research here of UTXOs are very short-lived in the the measure of uh, just a handful of blocks or or a few days between when a UTXO is created in in the set and then destroyed when it's spent. And so ordering the tree where you have the older things on the left and the younger things on the right with a shorter depth to them compacts the size of the UTXO inclusion proof for almost half of the the UTXOs that are frequently spent. 
So you, you get a, a big efficiency savings when these UTXOs that are constantly created and destroyed and then created and destroyed over and over, um, a node using UTXO to validate blocks would have a lot of savings in terms of the proof data that they have to get and validate in order to see that an input in a transaction is correct. And if you really want to go into like the in-depth specifics of how the tree is actually structured, um, the updating and um, deletion and validation processes, that would be in section four of the paper. But really the gist of it uh, in the broad strokes is just the left to right ordering. And then the fact that um, when you're going to delete an element, you can kind of condense the validation and deletion process into one thing, just because you know, the second you validate it, you've already established the path from the root at the top all the way down to that specific leaf in the tree. And so you can just condense the deletion process into the validation operation. Now, as far as the, I think, more complex issues of how this actually folds into Bitcoin as a whole and the overall network, um, there's firstly um, how this works on the peer-to-peer -peer layer and then um, a little bit into the nuance of how the, these proofs are actually validated and how efficient that can be made. So first off, um, obviously if you were running a compact state node, which is what uh, Tej calls it in this paper, using these UTXO commitments to validate a block, um, it's impossible for you to validate a block without them. And so this kind of creates a chicken and egg problem here. Um, if Let's say you spin one of these nodes up and you are the only person on the network who is doing this. Um, none of the other nodes have these inclusion proofs for UTXOs. Like they're not going to be sending them along with transactions or blocks. So the second you spin that node up, it's impossible for you to validate because nobody's going to be giving you the proofs you need to actually validate a block because you don't have the actual UTXO set. You just have the outputs you're interested in tracking and then the commitment into the root. So <clears throat> this would require effectively bridge nodes that would maintain the entire Merkle tree committing to the whole UTXO set so that compact state nodes when they start spinning up would have a place to get the commitments to UTXOs in order to actually validate things. And so um, they, they would pretty much only be able to receive blocks or transactions from bridge nodes because if, if they get those without the proofs, then th there's nothing they can really do with that. But on the other hand, a compact state node can relay a transaction to a normal full node because you, you just strip out the inclusion proof and then that full node with the whole UTXO set is able to validate that without the proof. So it kind of creates this asymmetry in terms of how the, this new class of node can actually interact with the overall network as a whole. And really because of this, 
I think, you know, in the very long term, Utrexo could wind up being an actual scaling solution for the UTXO set so that people don't have to keep it around. But realistically, I think for the foreseeable future, this is not really going to act as a, an overall scaling solution um, in that way. I think what it's going to just do is enable a new type of node on the network that allows you to fully validate with a lot less resources. But they will be pretty much completely dependent on these bridge nodes to actually get the extra data they need to validate things. And, you know, it's, I think looking at this as a, just this solves the, the problem of the UTXO set size growing is not the right way to look at it. But I still think this could be a very valuable thing because, you know, it, it might take a long time given technology improvements for a node on a desktop or a decently powerful machine to hit a, a pain point as far as holding and scanning the actual UTXO set. But that's an entirely different thing when you're talking about mobile devices. So this could allow, you know, a much higher degree of validation on lower powered devices without all of the resource costs. And I think that is a very powerful thing in and of itself, even if you don't look at this as some kind of overall scaling solution for the UTXO set. It could still provide a large degree of value to users in the ecosystem. And now as far as the actual scalability of the proofs and the UTXO commitments themselves, I think, you know, Tej has a lot of interesting observations about how this can play out in reality. I mean, you know, because the, the idea pretty much is that each transaction input has its own proof with the Merkle path from that UTXO all the way to the top of the tree committing to the whole UTXO set. But when you really think about this in practice, there's a lot of efficiency you can gain here. I mean, for instance, uh, let's say there are two inputs that are right next to each other in the UTXO set commitments. Well, you know that you take those and you hash them together to get the node in the Merkle tree above it. So you don't have to actually send the node above those two transactions in the Merkle path to anybody who's using this to validate it. Because once you send them those two leaf nodes, they can just compute it themselves. And so when you start looking at the specifics of where individual outputs are in the UTXO commitment tree, you can get a lot of different savings kind of opportunistically, depending on the situation, uh, based on where they are in the tree. There's gonna be all kinds of collisions where paths collide and combine and allow you to kind of cut down on the data you actually have to send because people will be able to just fill in the gaps computing them themselves because they have all of the data that actually creates those hashes. And so that can lead to a lot of network savings in terms of data flying around um, and using this type of proof. And also, um, 
the, the, the structure of the tree is generally the, the very top of the root and then kind of sub roots below that committing to different groupings of UTXOs. And that also gives a, a local node using UTXO kind of a trade-off to analyze. Uh, they can store more of, of those nodes in the tree going further down and kind of have that trade-off between disk and memory space used and data that they have to be relayed over the network. And so this is something you can kind of fine tune to find an optimal resource usage for your case as far as how much data is flying around the network and how much you're actually holding on to for long times yourself. And I think one of the interesting or most interesting optimizations um, comes as far as bootstrapping a UTXO node from scratch during the initial block download. So when you're downloading the, the blockchain from scratch, looking at the history of everything, somebody who already has a copy of that chain, they know how long a UTXO exists. Like they know that this UTXO created in block 2000 gets spent in block 2002. And so when a new UTXO node is bootstrapping and, and creating the UTXO set commitment, you can kind of have the nodes that they're bootstrapping this from give them hints as far as how long UTXOs will exist in the chain as they're bootstrapping and let them take the most optimal route in terms of how much of that whole UTXO commitment tree they're keeping um, and for how long so that they can get the most optimal resource usage uh, during the bootstrapping process. And really at the end of the day, the worst that can happen is that server giving you hints for this can lie and you wind up spending a little more resources during the IBD. And the server also winds up wasting resources and kind of lying to you when it's feeding you things. And so, you know, I, like I said, this, I don't, I don't really see this at least anytime soon being a, a viable way to just not care about how big the UTXO set grows. But I think this can be incredibly useful right now in getting more fully validating devices um, in terms of mobile devices or low powered computers actually up and running on the network. And I think that the, the cost trade-off with the requirement for bridge nodes to feed you proofs is you know one worth making because you really just need enough of those bridge nodes to feed you data which can't really be faked or malicious um, unless somebody can grind out hash collisions that it, it would be a, a very nice thing i mean th there's nothing wrong with having a new place on the spectrum as far as validation that that users can choose to occupy Done. Yeah. I was going to say, man, yeah, it sounds like uh, certainly some interesting concepts as far as maybe doing some sort of light client implementation where you're fully validating with that wallet and it's not, you know, doing the current way that they do things as far as just grabbing the block headers and, you know, maybe this bridge node set up with uh, what compact state node is what they're calling it. I mean, that sounds real interesting. I was like drawing out a diagram as you were doing it and 
it sounds like a yeah a real interesting concept i mean i'd like to see it be implemented somewhere and uh see how it does any comment there no par janine come on no par I, yeah. I have one comment. Ta, it's Taj Dreja. I don't care. Yeah. We, we, all, we all know that nobody here cares about pronouncing names correctly. Uh, well, I care because I've met him. <laughs> all right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What you got? Good job. What kind of name is that? I mean, which culture is that? All right, so I, 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 all right. So uh, yeah, I, I wanted to add something that uh, Nicola Dorier does something very, very similar that with BTC Pay. Uh, I think he's. Oh, I, I hope I can recall well. So what he's doing is that uh, not similar but simpler and solving similar problems maybe because I don't quite understand what you said, but. I actually tried. But anyway, what he's doing is that he's giving out the Docker nodes with Bitcoin Core on there. And the UTXO set is actually, uh, <clears throat> so, so the node is pre-synchronized. Uh, that's the point. So the UTXO set, anyone can validate if you want, or you can trust that a lot of people validated the pre-synchronized UTXO sets. So, your node is going to be much faster to get synchronized. Uh, this is one thing I wanted to throw in. The other thing is that you were talking about something like uh, like cutting through, um, which which again I didn't quite understand. But what I what it reminded me is that actually Maxwell have had a Bitcoin talk post uh, back then from 2013 or 14 uh, actually went yeah yeah it went under the radar for a lot of people and that yeah, might this, be something similar no this the, like pretty much the whole concept behind utrixo is that you you're just computing commitments to the utxo set in a merkle tree so you don't actually have to have the utxo set in order to fully validate anything you you just need the proof that a input is in your commitment to it along with all of the transactions in a block and then you can fully validate it without actually having the utxo set and another thing is it might be good although as as i understood what you said it's it's still pretty heavy but it might be good because as as you as you all know that we were talking about a lot previously about how to query data privately from the blockchain and all kind of bloom filters and all kind of stuff came out um, and there is also another problem with that is that the memory pool uh, to receive transactions from the nodes because using a wallet that is using the filters, the Bit158, Bit159 filters are actually not that, cannot handle the memory pool. And what we have to do is, is that, that the mempool is just 
transactions are coming in, broadcasting to us, and it's actually we believe every transaction that's being broadcasted to us, uh, and and there is really nothing to. This is this is so insecure. Even though it's unconfirmed, this is so insecure. So, if we would have a UTXO set, then now we could validate that hey, this this happens and this happens, and uh, that would be so much so much more so much better. Uh, I don't know. Do you think this this can be somehow used for this to for a light wallet to add it to a light wallet and now we we can we can validate mempool transactions. What do you think? Well, I mean, this like this would prove that the inputs are valid. But I mean, like the the whole idea behind this is like you aren't a light wallet. Like you are a full node fully validating things you just don't need to have a copy of the utxo set to do it all right i guess i was on the bed but truck there but anyway uh, you throw out this idea and people start to think about it and and combine it with other things and that's how you progress further uh yeah i think you're going to be so, doing a lot of that in the future because you got a baby to take care of now <laughs> let's move on <laughs> let's move right. on to the next topic all right Janine Please you're start. up with, with the title story Janine yeah uh, I just want to say I did not choose the title but yes <laughs> flex this topic so uh, I said, I don't know if it was the last episode or the one before that, but, but I said I wasn't interested in wading into this whole weird digital knife fight that is the gender disparity culture going on in Bitcoin right now. But uh, this will be really quick because I can show how stupid this whole thing is in just a few minutes. So Mike Dudas from The Block has been one of the main people tweeting about this and his most popular tweet said something along the lines of white male Bitcoiners are telling us all to pipe down. There's no need to discuss gender, race, or something inclusivity in an ecosystem that is 90% male and predominantly white, blah, blah, blah. So then I spent about 30 seconds looking at the Blocks team page, uh, and I realized, uh, and I actually responded to Mike, let me get that tweet really quick. Um, I looked at his team page, and I realized that it was about 87% men, I don't know why I chose a percent because that means I'm splitting people in parts, but almost 90% men, uh, mostly men, and because that's only two women. And I couldn't really tell the ethnicity of most of the people in the pictures because I they some of them actually looked whitened. <laughs> um, so it was hard to tell who was white and who was whitened, but I estimated that about two thirds were white. So white, uh, and that doesn't include Asians, by the way. So when, uh, when I saw that, I was like, Mike, uh, when is the block planning to be more inclusive? Uh, just to see what he would say. And then he says that they are currently updating the page and there are now five women on the team, which means that puts them at what, 67% or some 70, no, 70 something percent. Uh, and then he says, I'm not certain about two thirds white, but I believe less than that. Of course you do, Mike. Um, and so then the next question I asked 
asked him was, what was the source of his 90% white and male figure? Because I've heard this a number of times, like it, the number always changes is somewhere around 90%, sometimes 95%. And uh, just so everyone knows, um, Elaine has talked about this before and pointed out that Google Analytics is a terrible source of, you know, gender uh, breakdowns for your viewers because Google assumes if you're reading a lot of Bitcoin-related stuff or watching Bitcoin-related videos, it assumes that you're male. So you could be a woman and you could be very intensely interested in Bitcoin and Google, uh, you know, based, unless it has like so much data on obviously skew the data especially in a you know because bitcoiners tend to be slightly more conscious about you know privacy and security so there might not even be that much data to analyze and so then they can't you know distinguish between women who are interested in bitcoin and you know or obvious women who are interested in bitcoin and someone who might be male based on their interests but isn't so pointed this all out to him because I've heard it so many times before. And I actually checked the graph um, because the, the graph, the original graph that was cited by Deloitte Canada, um, I think it was actually CoinRadar or some other analytics site. And then they were using Google Analytics. So I actually checked that website and it was exactly 90% male to female at the time that I looked at it. So I thought, wow, great chance that Mike probably used this website. When I asked though, Mike claims that he looks at our own data in terms of, or I, I look at our own data in terms of who uses our product. And I have personally discussed this with many, many companies over the past six months. So basically what he's saying there at first, I was like, what do you mean your own data in terms of who uses your product? And then I realized he's talking about the block readers. And so then I looked through his tweets and I found a tweet um, that he made showing like, I think it was male, female statistics and that not, well, not get to the part where it's not statistics, but it was like male, female uh, age categories and things like that. And the graph doesn't have any, you know, X, Y axis labels besides male, female. There's no numbers on it. It's just these two bars. There's no values or units or anything like that. And this is the picture that he's basing this claim off of. But even more ridiculous than that, you know, using a very terrible graph, it makes absolutely no sense to say 90% of our readers are male, therefore Bitcoin is 90% male. It like, you can't, you can't do that kind of generalization, okay? Because you haven't accounted for the fact that maybe your writing style or your publications, you know, focus is more interesting to men than women. That doesn't mean that more men than women are interested in Bitcoin as a whole or, or, or are involved in Bitcoin as a whole. That just means that maybe, possibly, who knows where you got your numbers from, 90% of your readers are male and so your audience skews male. That doesn't reflect, you know, thousands, if not millions of people around the world, Mike. So next time you see someone claim that Bitcoin or cryptocurrency enthusiasts are 90% male, you should probably ask them where they got the numbers from. 
they will probably say Twitter or Google Analytics. And if they say either of those things, you can walk away shaking your head at the grand failed attempt at data journalism. In my personal experience, depending on which country I'm in and what type of gathering it is, whether it's in person or online, the male female gender balance at like meetups and conferences tends to be 70 30 or 60 40 online. Uh, in terms of like people I follow or conversations that I read, it's, um, you know, it can be anywhere in that range, depending on the topic, but it can be all the way down to 50-50. And there's almost always some percentage of a male skew, definitely. But uh, that's the case in most tech communities. And Bitcoin is, you know, it's, it, that's going to be a part of it if, and there's also finance, which, which is also uh, has a male skew. Uh, and it's also, you know, early days, early adopters tend to be men. That's the case. So none of this should be surprising to anyone. But yeah, 90%. No, that's that's if you're if you're going to a meetup or a conference or working at a company and your company is 90% male, you can't use that as the basis to then generalize an entire group of people who are interested in Bitcoin. That's not how it works because I, I, you know, I know companies in Bitcoin that are mostly female, that there's like one or two guys in the entire thing. So yeah. And I personally would like to see more women get interested in Bitcoin. But what I care about more is being able to talk to people who share my values and my interests. And you know what is not going to attract either me or more women? These shitty statistics. No, Par, you're fired. We're hiring Deja for, for diversity. <laughs> okay. But why? I mean, in the digest, it's look at it's... Uh... Two men and two women. Shinobi is a woman. Go you, fuck you yourself, bitch. <laughs> Shinobi is a monkey. Yeah. All right. Well, this is just yeah evidence of just how crazy Mike and I don't know that whole block is gone. I mean, like that is wild just to be like, oh well, this is the Bitcoin community. It's my readers that my readers that are paying a thousand dollars to read this and. It's just a crazy yeah. metric to try and just port that over. Yeah, like if if one thing I could actually see the data and it had nice labeled graphs with units, I might be willing to accept that as input if it at least came from a publication where the readers were not required to pay a thousand dollars a year <laughs> to read it. Because guess what? Uh, I don't know a lot of women uh who one either spend that much time like if they're involved in bitcoin they're probably not spending most of their time reading articles about it and i don't know there's a lot of us who can't even afford that and i don't know after this terrible display of the use of statistics i don't think i'd be willing to pay even if i had that money a thousand dollars a year to the block so yeah, you have to it's you have to take into account what the entry price is. But yeah. bro, the block is Bitcoin, bro. Like bro, they're not like fake news or arrogant dumb shits at all. They're they're Bitcoin. Did you didn't you see their logo? It's a block. 
like a Bitcoin block because they're Bitcoin. They're about to be the blocked. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, for the most part, I've tried to ignore the, those discussions from over there because it is kind of just like becoming like a distraction tactic. That whole gender, like, I mean, there's definitely areas where it's like, you know, we can improve on this and that. But I mean, bringing it up like this and everything just seems like, yeah, trying another distraction, just like something to bicker and moan about and... I don't know, get the community in a rife. That seems to be Mike's uh, main position nowadays. It's like, what can I do to stir this place up? Yep. Also, he's the guy who says that uh, anonymous people should get chased out of Bitcoin. So there's there's that too. Yikes. Super super Bitcoin-y, man. Super cypherpunk. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, so speaking of all that and uh, trying to weed out anonymous and anonymity, you want to take us into the next one? Yeah, so there's uh, not really much uh, to this story, just going to be a quick announcement. Um, but over the past couple days, uh, it's been flying around everywhere that local Bitcoins has pretty much removed all of their uh, local cash trade ads and it pretty much disabled the entire functionality on the website. And uh, what was it? Yesterday? Yeah, yesterday they made an announcement on Twitter that pretty much the reason for doing so is um, pretty much being located in Finland uh, and their inability to actually enforce uh, AML or terrorist financing restrictions or sanctions um, on in-person cash trades, uh, they were pretty much required to do so because of the regulatory environment in Finland as continuing to have these cash, ad or cash ads would open them up to liability for failure to comply with these regulations. And so, you know, honestly, I think this is pretty much just the, the death knell for local Bitcoins. Because, I mean, ultimately, that in-person cash trading was the big value add of that site. Like being able to privately and, you know, conveniently just acquire Bitcoin, just handing over cash in hand, not having to deal with wire transfers or chargeback risks or any of the other nonsense that both sides of the trade would have to deal with using other payment methods. Um, I really think they're going to take a big hit here. And it's just ultimately, like, it sucks because having that type of on and off ramp in terms of just anonymous cash transactions is an important thing in this space. And hopefully we see somebody else actually step into this space or other people doing this kind of thing, kind of take over the, the customer migration. I know Paxful um, is another alternative. But hey, hey, hey. Roger is coming to save us. He created you know. the new local Bitcoin. <laughs> oh yeah, that, that reminds me. There's also OTC um, bitcoins on IRC. 
uh, which is infinitely better than that scam site. But yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know, this will lead to competitors soaking up that uh, customer base or new competitors entering the space. But it, it just really sucks because you know, local Bitcoins, specifically a cash trade, was how I actually got my first Bitcoins. And whenever I wanted coins that would not be tied to my legal identity, that's where I went. And it just kind of sucks to see that's not really an option for me anymore. But, you know, that said, um, in the next couple of days, we're going to try and do a special edition with a local Bitcoin trader and kind of go into a lot of the problems and issues that they specifically dealt with and just kind of overall with these kinds of Bitcoin for cash uh, trades and platforms. And so, you know, I'm kind of just going to leave this uh, there for now and hopefully in the next few days we can get that special edition out there. Yeah, I'm, I have to be honest. I'm not that. I'm not that sad about local Bitcoin going into this route, going down here because actually, yeah, local Bitcoins was the first first place I acquired Bitcoin to. But my point is that man, in 2013 I went on local Bitcoin, and in 2019 I went on local Bitcoin. And the site looks exactly the same. There was all, almost zero improvements, a couple of <laughs> nothing. It's just, I'm just so, I mean, you just don't care about your products so much. I, I don't actually want to, <sighs> because it was a site where you, you would say to people, hey, go to local Bitcoins and that's how you can get your Bitcoins privately. But they just they just didn't improve. I I, I really didn't like that. I, and on the other hand, just to quickly go to the other topic, the Roger thing that I'm actually quite happy that uh, he he started to do this local.bitcoin.com because there is a huge need for this, especially now and. Finally, that Roger would have done something amazing, great. He just stole the name. Like, man, like I could have appreciated something you were finally doing, but you're stealing the name. It's like, oh, come on. It's a joke. All right. That's end of rant. <laughs> yeah, I mean... For sure, like we need a different competitor up there. Hopefully, uh, you know, they'll take note of all that and, you know, they'll listen to some of the stuff from, you know, the hopefully we can get, yeah, like we're all on here, that special edition and we can kind of run through some of the problems that were on that platform and everything. So, yeah, it'll be uh, good to just get somebody new and fresh in there because you can't stop people from trading what they think is valuable in person. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah. All right, so yeah, let's uh, move into what else has been going on here. So just a few days ago, Nick Cody or MBTC PizPi on Twitter put out a tweet showing a recent flash crash in the books over at Kraken. More specifically, it was the CAD BTC books where we saw the crash in price. 
Initial speculation over the incident was that it could have been a trader or rogue trading bot that mistakenly sold the BTC, which there is some history of traders making up that finger sell order and trading bots going rogue. But after a little time had passed, another story started to emerge. Bitcoin macro or at BTC macro on Twitter put forward the speculation that a hacker could have com compromised an account on Kraken and couldn't withdraw the funds. So he dumped the 1200 BTC down to 100 CAD, which is around $75. And in doing so, he sold himself 1,155 1, Bitcoin. Now, I should reiterate, this is just speculation at this point, but if this situation is true, then it would mean the CAD BTC books cost 45 Bitcoin to dump all the way down to 100 CAD. Now, all of this going is going at a, on at a very inopportune time for Kraken. They've just recently started selling shares of the exchange and currently courting investors in the company. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a postmortem blog post in the coming days to help bring some clarity to the situation and what they are planning to do to possibly avoid these situations in the future. But honestly, it's hard to say what they could have done to avoid this since it may have been the trader's fault or for having poor OPSEC. Either way, this just happened a few days ago and it's a developing situation, like I said. So I wouldn't be surprised, yeah, if we see that blog post. So if if not, um if yeah, if we don't see the blog post, I'm sure we'll see the story crop back up as an example of how much Bitcoin is manipulated. So yeah, that's uh what happened with Kraken. Did you guys have any comment on that? Yeah, I, I heard this before. Someone was doing this before. I can't recall where, but it's definitely not a new thing because this strategy of, well, I can't be drawn for the account that I hacked, and okay, then I create a new account uh, and buy some shitcoin, and then with the account that I hacked, I buy up that shitcoin, and then I sell my shitcoin. You know, this this strategy is not new, but I can't recall why where I I heard about it. Woo! Yeah, that's a about probably what this guy was thinking whenever he got out of there with this money. Cause uh, yeah, it's a lot of money. I mean, uh, 1155 Bitcoins for 45 Bitcoins. It's a pretty good strategy. I mean, it's hard to say how you can avoid that. I mean, it's just like educating your user base and making sure that they're doing like, I mean, like uh 2FA and all that sort of stuff. I mean, maybe you could restrict the accounts to just 2FA and even that's still vulnerable. So, well, maybe you should implement know your customer, shouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Alrighty, Janine. Drop Are it like ready it's to hot. Go back to I'm very hot raccoon. Oh. So, in episodes number 82, 114, and 140, we have talked for a very long time about the various shady things that a guy named Morgan Raccoons, uh, previously known as Node Father on Twitter, has been up to, including last year a land fraud scheme called Bitcointopia during his pre-trial release. Um, he had been arrested uh, in October last year and has been fighting a legal battle related to that since and their uh, the summary of the case uh, for the Justice Department is as follows in the spring of 2018 while on pretrial release 
raccoons began promoting Bitcointopia on the internet and via social media. A purported real estate development in the area, in the desert of Elko County, Nevada, raccoons uh, touted Bitcointopia as a place where Bitcoin is, quote, legal tender. On the website, raccoons offered parcels of land for sale for Bitcoin, claiming the land is currently owned by Bitcointopia, Inc. Corporation. And raccoons further stated that 500 to 1,000 acre plots are for sale for a half of Bitcoin per acre. Victims who sent raccoons Bitcoin never received their title to land as promised. And to date, agents have identified at least 10 victims of the land fraud scheme. The two cases were combined in a superseding indictment. The the charge for um, operating unlicensed money launder or <laughs> money laundering business. <laughs> Oper- that's called a bank. Um, operating a unlicensed money transmitter business, and then uh, the wire fraud was related to the land fraud scheme. So on May twenty eighth, the uh, Department of Justice announced that he has now been sentenced to twenty one months in prison for the wire fraud and operating an unlicensed money transmitter business. And he's also been forced to forfeit $80,000, which uh, both of those things are actually a very light sentence because uh, the maximum for unlicensed money transmission is five years in prison and $250,000 fine. And for wire fraud, it's 20 years in prison and $250,000. So he got a relatively light sentence for the maximum. Um, But yeah, this is now the conclusion to that crazy case that's been going on since uh, 2017, I believe, end of 2017, early 2018. Oh, man, 19 months in prison. I wonder if he's going to come out the other side and, you know, with some bright ideas, you know, I mean, Charlie went to prison for a little bit, came out and he's like, you know, doing it all right on the other side. But Morgan, I don't know, man, this guy, we'll see. Wrecked. <laughs> You're great with the comments today, man. Already, well, uh, yeah, uh, he is a giant scamming piece of shit, and this is one of those instances where uh, moronic, incompetent governments actually got something right. Yeah. All right. They let him off light. So any more comments, go on to the next one. You can just keep burning through these. Go. All right. Guys, so they said they were going to do it, and it's here. Samurai Dojo 1.0 backend has been open sourced and is publicly available today. Well, it's been available for a couple of days now, but let me say congratulations to everyone over at Samurai. I know they've been hard at work on this project for a long time, and it's good to see everything coming together. For anyone wondering what's the big deal with this release, well, it's been a long-running fact and a reoccurring argument within the community that we have to trust Samurai's backend server. Samurai is a very small development team working out of passion for privacy, and it's been a gradual stepping stone roadmap that did require trust in those initial steps. Well, with this release of Dojo 1.0, we are starting to see that level of trust fade away. All right, so here's some uh, some of the quotes from their recent blog posts on the development. Quote, we are proud to announce the release of op- the release and open sourcing of Samurai Dojo. Dojo is, pro- is a is professional backend software infrastructure that sits on top of and 
augments a Bitcoin Core full node to power the most private Bitcoin wallet on the market, Samurai Wallet. This is a huge milestone for us as we have been working towards this moment since we started Samurai in 2015. A huge win for the sovereignty of individual users, a win for Bitcoin privacy, and a win for open source software. Dojo has been battle-tested, powering all current Samurai Wallet clients. This is a professional software that we have that we have invested significant amounts of time and money into developing and is now being made available to download, install, and be used for anyone for free. It supports all the functionality currently provided in Samurai Wallets, close quote. So uh, that functionality is providing unspent output lists to Samurai Wallet using your, your backing full node, provide fee rates to use from your local mempool, mempool orchestrator for time-delayed transactions, which is staggered ricochet, uh, push transaction endpoint for broadcasting transactions through your backing full node, and support for tracking with BIP44, BIP49, BIP84, 47, and loose addresses, pay to pubkey hash, pay to script hash, and BEC32. Now you can go over the full blog post and get started with the Dojo software from the links in the show notes. Installation is supposed to run very smoothly with just a single automated script that will start to show you the ways of the samurai. Soon you'll be running a Bitcoin full node accessible via an ephemeral Tor hidden service. You'll have your own database for storing addresses and transactions of interest. There's API accessible as a static Tor hidden service and a maintenance tool accessible through a Tor web browser. All right, with all that said, we do have one major update left on the roadmap that will bring the Samurai Wallet out of alpha. That update will allow the pairing of your Samurai Wallet with your Dojo backend. And in the blog post, they say that we can expect that any day now. So great job and cheers, Samurai. I know you guys have been working hard on this. So uh, go out and celebrate. And uh, yeah, so are you guys going to install a Dojo backend sometime soon? Yep, I'm going to be fucking throwing it up uh, hopefully later today if I have the time. I've just been kind of busy lately. And I mean, it's really going to be fucking nice. To, well, obviously, I, I'm going to have to go back and actually re-index my node first. But it's going to be nice to just have a simple point and click thing for a mobile wallet. And more importantly, to have something that I can have friends and family point a wallet at. I mean, like especially when um, brain fart Sentinel, their watch-only wallet, um, they're planning on bringing cold card support with PSBT to that. Like especially when that happens, like anyone in my family or friend circle that is not running their own node i'm going to get hooked up to mine so that will be pretty fucking awesome to have something painless that's not gonna make their head explode yeah for sure i think uh you know like uh one of my parents the other day was talking about bitcoin and bitcoin wallets is like oh no don't get started in that like you know if you had something like this i would definitely feel a little bit more okay about it no far, Janine, you got any comment on the Dojo open source? I no, will my... definitely be testing it. 
Oh, sorry. It just I'm not sure you can hear me. My uh my earphones actually just kind of losing one of it already. Lost uh, the battery, so I'm setting it up for a moment. All right. Well then uh yeah, you wanna take us into the next one? Mm-hmm. Uh coinciding with the launch and open sourcing of Dojo, <clears throat> roughly speaking. Uh, Samurai or Katana Cryptographic, which is the actual uh, incorporated company behind Samurai, has announced that they've raised $100,000 in a small seed round from Cypherpunk Holdings, which is actually a listed company in Canada specifically planning on making small tactical investments in privacy-related technologies or companies. And I am really happy to see this because, you know, Samurai is a very small team and company, and 100 grand might not seem like a lot when you look at the, the crazy figures in terms of large companies raising in this space or the ICO bonanza nonsense, but that's something that can be tactically used with a, a small team like this to really stretch out some runway and keep building out and streamlining their current products and hopefully working on some more. Because, you know, right now there's really just an arms race in terms of privacy shit being built and deployed on the Bitcoin network. And I think there is still a lot of room to keep tinkering and innovating in that space. So I'm glad to see them actually get some funding to continue moving in that direction. Yeah. Like you're saying, man, uh, you know, I know, uh, no par knows it's like a uh, tireless work out there, working uh, without uh, much funding and everything and trying to get that stuff uh, out there. And so to have some funding lined up, that would definitely, uh, you know, help out with development and just getting things paid for and making sure everybody's uh, not worrying about their bread and everything. Alrighty. So I guess uh, there's no more comments on this. You want to take us into the next one, Rick? Kind of shocked you. I thought we were going to run way the hell over, but uh, <laughs> we might actually make it under two this time. Yeah, man. It's going to be a uh, an under two episode. I think you're right, but that's okay. It's, uh, yeah, these stories, you know, the first few stories kind of dragged on, but these kind of run quick. But let's get into something exciting here. Every now and again in this space, we get a story that just breaks through the molds and redesigns an imaginative new way of finding efficiency gains within a system. And uh, I think we got something like that with this one, maybe. So there's a new project in Tehran that's still in conceptual design phase, but the idea is to build a large cryptocurrency mining operation undercover with a secondary function. That is being a water park. That's right. We may one day ride the slip and slides over hashing hardware. So the link is in the show notes, and I highly recommend you take a look at the conceptual and design drawings for the installation. For the installation, it's uh, imagined to be an 1800, 1800 plus foot structure built on a hill atop uh, the city of Tehran, with the uh, miners built into and throughout the water park. 
it also just looks like a fun structure. If the finished product ends up like the concept, I would really like to see it and might have to line up a trip to Iran one day. Hopefully uh, by that time, the structure is finished. We'll see better relations between our countries and maybe I can visit. But it should be said that this thought and design was put forward in trying to find a way around U.S. sanctions. This project is trying to better educate everyone in Iran of their capability to design their way out of the problems they find themselves in using new technologies. So, uh, yeah, just a little bit of a fun story for now, but it'll be great if we actually start to see this project move from the drawing boards to the construction sites. So, uh, yeah, maybe uh, Zaya can clue us in on that or something. So, all right, guys, would you visit this park or is it just a wackadoo thought? What do you think about mining and slip and sliding and all that? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty interesting idea, especially when you can start looking at, you know, feeding the, the water into the actual mining operation. You know, you get cooling for the equipment and then also heating for the water for anywhere you want any kind of heated pool or anything in the park. I think that would be pretty interesting. I have a feeling this is going to be featured in a cypherpunk book or movie someday. <laughs> yeah, I would be surprised. It definitely seems like an interesting idea where it's like a futuristic landscape. So yeah, it'll be cool to see maybe one day it'll, it'll actually happen here shortly maybe in the next few years. Nito Bambino. So, uh, no par, are you still, uh, still deaf? Or we get no, you back I, changed, I changed from mobile to, to computer. So I hope my voice is good. Yeah, it sounds good, man. What do you think about a water park mining facility? Well, you know, one of the problem was with changing the thinks is that uh, I didn't hear what's, what's going on. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's all right, man. But uh, yeah, so they're building a mining facility in Iran that's also going to be a water park. That sounds fun. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. So uh, you want to take us into the next uh, fun development for Bitcoin, man? Yeah, so this is uh, yet another thing um, that we covered a while back, but it's kind of been circulating in the news again. Um, this time it's the uh, state chain concept from uh, Ruben Sampson that he presented at Scaling Bitcoin in 2017. But it, it's kind of since then not really gathered a lot of attraction or attention. So he went back and actually uh, wrote a Medium post yesterday to kind of go over things at a, a bit of a higher level than the actual presentation or the paper he released on it. And, you know, it's, I think it's something nice uh, in terms of the second layers with different trade-offs than the existing one. Because, I mean, like ultimately right now, at least in terms of what's actually deployed, you pretty much have with federated side chains, a lightning network, and then fully custodial systems. And I think this strikes a pretty nice balance between lightning and something like liquid. And so pretty much the, 
Well, first off, uh, in order to actually build this, uh, it would require Schnorr signatures as well as L2, um, the channel update mechanism that Blockstream developed last year. But the, the gist of the idea is um, that you can lock up a UTXO and pretty much on a two-sided um, branch script, you have a two of two multi-sig to spend the output or a time-locked transaction to a single key. And the idea is that the two of two would be the user and then a federation of people. And because of Schnorr signatures, you can condense the federation into a single key. But the logic behind it is that I, I generate a, a new private key and then create the uh, script that locks it with that key and the federation's key. And then the path that gives it back to me in a time lock. And the way that a state chain works is effectively if I want to transfer that UTXO and I have to transfer the entire UTXO, that, that's one of the core trade-offs here is that you can't really break up that UTXO in the state chain because the whole idea is just transferring control of the entire UTXO. But what I would do is I would give that new public or private key that I generated that in combination with the Federation's key can spend those coins to the person I'm giving it to and transferring the UTXO to. And then I would pretty much go through a signing process with me, the person I'm transferring it to and the Federation using Schnorr adapter signatures to kind of make this all atomic and prove that I'm legitimately transferring this. The person who's receiving it proves they're receiving it and the Federation kind of signs off on this in combination with creating a new pre-signed transaction that locks it in two paths with the federation and the private key that I gave to the person I'm handing it to. And then the time locked path goes to their key now instead of mine. And so using L2 and Schnorr signatures, you can atomically do this over and over and over again and build a chain of the notarizations that these are legitimately transferred to the next person, which is the state chain. And then these pre-signed transactions that allow a person to either redeem it with a time lock or the Federation and anybody with the private key that was created at the start to collaboratively spend it. And so the whole idea here is that Unlike a federated sidechain, you can just withdraw your coin from the state chain without having to get that federation's permission because of the pre-signed transaction. But the federation is capable of collaborating with any previous owner of this output and stealing it. But the thing is with the state chain, 
notarizing with everybody involved signatures the, every time it's transferred. If the Federation collaborated with a previous owner to steal it, there's cryptographic proof that that was an illegitimate um, redemption of that coin. And you could pretty much trash the Federation's reputation after that point. And then everybody involved with um, them could just withdraw their coins on chain immediately. Now, another interesting thing with this is that state chains could potentially use blinded signatures too, so that they wouldn't even know what they're signing. So that could add a, another degree of privacy between the people involved and the state chain federation. Now, to go even further here, because of the, the limitation of the whole UTXO having to be transferred at pretty much one time, all in one go, you can't break it up, you can solve this issue by effectively opening a lightning channel on top of that state chain UTXO. So you have the private key and federation spend path and then that time locked path with the person who owns the utxo that time locked path can be updated into a multi-sig address and then a lightning network channel state built on top of that and so you can use this to kind of get over the issue of the utxo having to be transferred in whole and you can build a, a two-person lightning channel or even a channel factory on top of a UTXO locked up in a state chain. And the nice thing about this is, given the fact that it can be withdrawn without the Federation's permission, at any time, the people involved in that channel or that channel factory could just drop that channel directly onto the main chain and remove the state chain federation from being involved with it so like let's say you you establish this channel and you're using it and people for whatever reason want to remove the risk that the federation could steal it in um, combination with a previous owner you can just drop that to the main chain and that risk of theft with the federation is no longer an issue and also with adapter signatures, you can do interesting things like atomically swapping UTXOs. So let's say you have one for a whole Bitcoin, but you want one broken up in, or you want a couple of different UTXOs in smaller denominations. With adapter signatures on Schnorr, that can be done atomically so that there's no risk of anybody losing money. As well, that could be used um, to swap between any different network that works on the UTXO model because the entire state chain concept would be workable on any UTXO network that supports L2 and Schnorr signatures. And there's like really just some, you know, pretty awesome shit you can build on top of this. And I think, you know, my favorite thing about this is that a lot of the liquidity issues with Lightning can be just dealt with on top of a state chain because you can kind of close and open channels without ever touching the main chain as long as you're willing to trust whatever federation you're using for your state chain 
And so a lot of uh, liquidity shortages or gaps can just be filled in without any on-chain fees as long as those channels are built on top of the state chain. And now, again, this is going to require Schnorr signatures and L2 to actually build. But I really want to see this built. I mean, it's, you know, there there is nothing that should prevent people from building all of the second layers that are possible with all of the different trust models that are possible. And like I said at the beginning, like this fits like the perfect middle ground between something like lightning that is totally trustless and something like a federated side chain where you actively have to get the federation's permission in order to remove your coins from that side chain. Like you, you still have to trust a federation not to collaborate with somebody to steal, but you can remove your coins from the state chain at any time and don't actively need to get their permission to do so. And so it's like there, there's a whole spectrum of trust models as far as second layers on top of Bitcoin. And we should be doing everything we can to fill that spectrum in with actual concrete proposals. Like it should not be a black and white if it's not completely trustless, fuck that. Like we should have as many different places on that spectrum as possible filled. And I think this plugs a nice gap between the two that are actually deployed right now. So, you know, look at this idea and really dig through the paper and the presentation and, and start thinking because I, I really don't want to see this kind of just fall off to the wayside and nobody really pay any attention to it because it's an awesome idea. If it falls off, then it wasn't that awesome idea. But I actually think it's not going to fall off. It's just there are some some requirements, as you said. It, it needs Schnorr. Uh, I'm not sure about that, but yeah, possibly. Uh, what what Rubin said is actually it needs uh, Ccash any out, uh, which was previously known as Ccash no input uh, as a soft fork into Bitcoin, which I, which as Ruben said, it might which may take a while before gets soft forked into Bitcoin, uh, but 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 it's. So this 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 sounds really amazing. It 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 we might don't realize it at this point in time, but it might be such a definitive moment when Lightning Network came into existence in the first place. So this might be something that if you're a developer and looking to get into Bitcoin and you want to put on the right horse, then this might be this might be that. This might be the thing that you would want to get involved with and and good luck with that it's i i think this 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 is this is just just great uh, i'm i'm not quite familiar with the downsides of it yet but i have a holistic understanding and and so far everything looks good yeah man i mean it's like you're saying i mean bring us all the second layers and uh you know if we can find some sort of bridge between them and, you know, like, uh, just let's sort of find their niche for all these things. And for sure, it's going to need some people working on it. And so hopefully, uh, yeah, there's some developers out there that are already picking up on this and trying to move forward with it because, uh, you know, 
you can figure out some sort of way to make that efficiency gain, you can really make a name for yourself. Maybe people are not that interested because they think Lightning Network will solve everything. <laughs> That's, you know, there is a good competition there between Lightning and Liquid where it's like, uh, you know, I can understand it's like those mindsets where it's like they're all in on Lightning or they're all in on Liquid and, you know, but they also, you know, even in that, they, they respect each other's different trade-offs and what they're trying to do. And so, you know, yeah, this will just be another one out there that, you know, can hopefully tie them all together. Alrighty, Rick, what's up next? Oh, yeah. You know, our favorite operating system and mass producer of great hardware here. So it looks like Apple is jumping on the crypto bandwagon with this bull run. We've seen Samsung just recently release that crypto wallet with their new S10. And by the way, that was a rocky launch. And I don't know anyone who takes that wallet seriously. So um, that's the way it, it, they're whole crypto introduction went. So Apple versus Samsung is a long-standing game and in the world of dwindling top-of-the-line smartphone usage, every little inch of this battle matters. So now Apple is set to release their new crypto kit, which will allow developers an easy way to build cryptographic functionality within their apps. This, new, this news is coming to us from the ongoing Worldwide Developers Conference 2019 and it's really just an early piece of news that was put out for the agenda today. So we should have a lot more information after that, but let's go over their post on the crypto kit. So this is all from their post quote, using Apple crypto kit, crypto is to perform common cryptographic operations, commute, compute and compare cryptographically secure digest, use public key cryptography to create and evaluate digital signatures, and to perform key exchange. In addition to working with the keys stored in memory, you can also use private keys stored in and managed by the secure enclave. Generate symmetric keys and use them in operations like message authentication and encryption. And uh, CryptoKit frees your app from managing raw pointers and automatically handles tasks that make your app more secure like overwriting sensitive data during memory deallocation, de close quote. All right, so not much there, like I said, but I do think this is a better approach than Samsung. It sounds more like an open invitation to build your apps on iOS instead of Samsung's approach of acquiring a few developers and cryptocurrency projects to work on an in-house wallet. I'm sure we'll get a better feel for what they're planning after today's events at the WWDC. But what do you guys think about this initial information of a crypto kit on Apple? Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a good thing. I mean, it's it, it's always going to be better to have cryptographic operations handled by some kind of hardened system versus just normal memory and then the CPU. But the the one thing I don't want to see is people start treating this like it's the same thing as special purpose hardware that's isolated from networks as far as the level of security it can handle or i mean it has when handling cryptographic keys like it's not i mean it's things like this are always going to be a step up from just a completely 
like insecure memory and just doing things normally, but it's, it's not anytime soon going to approach the, the level of security as a completely air gapped special purpose machine. So, I mean, like, I'm, I'm glad to see it. I just don't want people to run away and think this is going to be just as secure as a cold card or something, uh, as far as handling private keys, because it's not, I mean, like there's been a number of times in the last five years where these types of secure enclaves and chips have been broken and compromised. And ultimately, if it's connected to a network, it's not going to be as secure as something that is just point blank. Yeah, I'd agree. It's uh, good that this sort of uh, tools are being put out there to where they can you know, provide some security for what they want to develop, but for sure, like, uh, there needs to be that understanding that this is not a, uh, a cold storage. So yeah, it's just, uh, those Apple users, man, they're, you know, there's a lot of that people, they just trust Apple and maybe they're just going to run with that. And I mean, like, did you see, like, just somebody in the chat was saying, did you guys see they released that new MacBook pro where the monitor stand cost a thousand dollars and people are going to buy it. That's, Crazy oh Apple my users. God. Whee! Take my money, yeah. Brand God. <laughs> yeah, I had someone on Twitter ask me what I thought about Apple in, in general from a privacy and security perspective. And I just said that, like, you know, if you're comparing, a, you know, the defaults in terms of, like, smartphones um, in particular... If you're comparing like the default settings of the average Android phone to the default settings of the average iPhone, I would say that general, like, you know, ignoring the, the fact that iPhones cost so much more than Android phones, um, the iPhone is, I think, in general, superior to Android, even though Android is supposedly like open source and all that, but it's full of Google shit. If you can get rid of the Google shit, I would say that Android would be okay because because obviously Apple stuff is all closed source and all of that. But in general, all right. Janine, that, you that being said, with okay. Apple, that being just said, came back. So that's not great. But yeah, I'm. I, you just got oh, wrecked. I just super cut out. Hard. Oh, damn it. Um, anyway, so yeah, I've never been an Apple person. I've never owned an Apple product. That's all I have to say. Oh, no. No, you're Did with I us. just get wrecked? No, you're still, you got, we got okay. that one. But yeah, it's like, uh, there's definitely some trade-offs there. And it's like, to me, it's like as much as the hardware might be a little bit more secure with the default Apple versus default Android, it's just still like, you know, it's one company, one group of people you got to come to for that information. And I mean... I'm trying to recollect that whole a Apple FBI case where they were getting into that uh, guy's information and they were asking for a backdoor to be installed. I don't think they actually did that, but uh, maybe they did. I'd, I'd have to go back and look into that. But it just seems like a very easy point of failure. Uh, I mean, Apple didn't give it to them, but I think they used... Um, it's suspected that... I haven't looked at it in a really long time, but I covered that case in 2016. 16 and the last thing I, I know is that they think the fbi got an exploit tool from some israeli company 
as far as I know, that was the conclusion. Mm-mm. All right. Yeah, I've seen some stuff there recently about Apple doing privacy as a service. So maybe they're taking privacy seriously and I should yeah. start figuring out an, an iOS device. I mean, like they, they always kind of have, but I just I still don't trust the closed sourced walled garden approach. I mean, like the, I just I, I'm not comfortable with that. I, I want to be able to do whatever I want with my device. Like that's why I bought it. But yeah. that said, like they have made a lot of, you know, steps over the years to really try to make that privacy by default for your average idiot, like just there. And I mean, like another thing, you know, everybody's obsessed with the thousand dollar hunk of metal that does nothing but hold a screen up. But another thing they announced was the, um, transitory email address so like anybody who has an apple account is now going to be able to generate a one-use email address on the fly and just use that to fill out forms or hand out and so on and that like that's huge like that is absolutely huge because you know that there's a lot of services out there that do that but a lot of websites and companies will block those addresses because they want to get your actual address and, and be able to use that for data mining. But Apple stepping up and offering that service for default for their users is going to completely change the game because now like banning that type of like temporary email address, well, if you do that, you're going to start pissing off all of the Apple users out there, which is a huge group of people and driving them away from your service. And so Apple stepping up and kind of bringing this, this old standing service into their company is really going to, I think, be a huge part in driving it forward into the mainstream because you, you can't just ignore it and ban it and just go, I don't care because the, the couple of privacy nuts out there don't matter. Like, you're going to start just driving away normal people who are going to look at and start using this because it's like, oh, Apple put this together so I can just press a button and protect my privacy. And that's a whole different calculation from a business's point of view. Yeah, I mean, they seem to be calculating things right. And uh, just a shout out to Audio Video Tweaker in the chat for helping spur along the discussion. So, all right, let's... uh. Keep moving along. We did make it just over two. So last episode, we talked about the new crypto defense fund for Kicks ICO Kin, which was put together under the claims of harassment by the SEC, and they explained that the community should stand behind them in this fight. We also touched on the fact that this was going to be a major fight and that the alliances within with Kick were showing a movement of shitcoiners getting together to pick the battleground. Well, the SEC has said game one, and just yesterday dropped a 49-page lawsuit against Kick. Now the company and their Crypto Defense Alliance are going to have to explain in a court, a court of law why they issued un, an unregistered security in the form of a $100 million digital token offering. Stephen Pikin, co-director of the SEC's Division of Enforcement, said, quote, by selling $100 million in securities without registering the offers of sales, we allege that Kick deprived investors of information to which they were legally entitled. 
and prevented investors from making informed investment decisions. Companies do not face a binary choice between innovation and compliance with the federal securities law, close quote. So all of this got a quick response from Kick. CEO Ted Livingston said, quote, we may have been, ex we have been expecting this for quite some time, and we welcome the opportunity to fight for the future of crypto in the United States. We hope that this case will make, make it clear that the securities law should not be applied to a currency used by millions of people and in dozens of apps. So it looks like the stage is set to play out in the Southern District of New York before a jury. So there will certainly be more developments on this story as we move forward, and we'll be sure to bring them to you as they do. Uh, I know I knew from that defense fund they were preparing for this battle. So let's see if they were really ready for it. But uh, yeah, what do you guys think about this uh, lawsuit and the possibility of explaining all this to a jury? Well, I feel really conflicted here because this project is just a complete and obvious scam. But at the same time, it's like my general attitude about markets are it's people should be able to invest in what they want. And if they get burned, you just learned a lesson. And, you know, this is also likely going to lead to a lot more strict interpretation of things. And I mean, possibly it might even lead to new legislation somewhere down the line. But, you know, as much of a scam as this specific product is, I mean, I, I don't like the government stepping in and playing arbiter like this. Like people should be allowed to make their own decisions and take their own risks and they'll learn. No part, Janine, you got any comment about SEC sue and kick? Yeah, I can only reiterate myself on this topic that people should be able to make stupid decisions. It just no one has anything to do with it. Yeah, I guess we knew this fight was coming, though. I mean, like, I agree. I mean, like, people are allowed to make stupid decisions, and I think the market will ultimately learn. But the way the construct is right now, boy, they want to, they really want to come in and, you know, figure some things out. Janine, any comment? Well, I mean, my only comment is that I still don't know, like, because they claim they have. 300,000 users. I have li literally never heard of this thing until the last episode. Like I said, where are these people? Like, are is there anyone who is actually going to learn a lesson or are they just making this up? Like maybe they had a dozen people who s somehow found out about it, but seriously, like who, who even bought this thing? I didn't even know it existed. I know. Millions of users in dozens of apps is what the CEO says. But yeah, I don't know of any of that at all. So yeah, they must be looking at some metrics. We're not. All right. So with that, then, yeah, brought us right over 205. Uh, you got some final thoughts, huh? Waka waka. Final thought. Load it. Please. Well, it's the open letter that I found from Shapeshift. Um, it was actually written yesterday, and, but I just saw it now. 
And I just want to say, um, before we get into what it's about, when you see the title, An Open Letter to X, what is your assumption about what the subject of that post is? Positive or negative news? I'm going to say negative. Yep. Yeah, so whenever I've seen the, the title, An Open Letter to blank, it's always been bad news. So just a tip to marketers out there, don't use this phrase for positive news because people will assume it's bad news. Well, of course, that will just, you know, keep the association going. But anyway, it's called an open letter to keep key users. And I hope I'm not getting wrecked right now. Um, no, you're good. Yeah, I've I read the entire thing and I don't actually know what it's about. There's a lot of marketing hypey language about thanking users for doing good things, setting a good example, shapeshift acquired keep key. Then they're they're apparently launching a platform that's more convenient than cold storage, but more secure than a custodial wallet. I don't know exactly what they're talking about, but Okay, so apparently KeepKey now has a platform, and it has a keys out principle. No idea what that really means. <laughs> in before, they're starting a Casa competitor, and JW is going to get butthurt about them because that's two people who started a multi-sig company before he could. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. I've heard some rumblings about Shapeshift's new roadmap has well, got KeepKey heavily involved. I don't know. What do you guys think? If you if you don't want to send the keep key to me in order to integrate it to my software, you don't care that much about your product, then I I don't know. I just there is no hope for you. Is there any more on that, Janine, <laughs> or can I can I rant about my my fucking shapeshift story? No, you can rant about it. That's really it. I just don't know what they're talking about. All right. So, Shapeshift, the steaming pile of shit that instituted KYC uh, registration, despite actually not having any legal mandate to do so, um, is a steaming pile of fucking shit. So, over the last couple of days... Language... I've no, Language. no, no, you can it's shut, shut your fucking mouth. The, room. <laughs> the baby can't understand words. He'll get over it. So uh, I've been helping a buddy of mine rotate his Bitcoin into a new um, mnemonic seed because he, he pretty much just bought them two years ago and hasn't touched them since so that he can finally get around to dumping his shit forks. And so after going through the entire... Uh, registration process and doxing himself to shapeshift, um, trying to go through and sell his Bcash. Every time he went and clicked the button to shift, he kept getting an error message. Shift cannot be completed. Error. Try again in five minutes. And did this for about 30 fucking minutes where it just kept throwing the same error message and wouldn't actually initiate a goddamn shift despite having verified his account for a $10,000 limit. So he logs out of his account to log back in and see if it was simply a, a, a bug or a glitch. 
in a different browser. I watched him sign up his entire account. I knew what his password was. And I watched him enter the correct password five times in a fucking row. And Shapeshift kept telling him his password was incorrect and then locked his account for 10 minutes. So he went through the password reset process. I literally sat down with him and wrote down letter by letter the new password he generated to be 110% clear and sure it is the correct password. And yet again, watched him enter the correct password five times in a fucking row and have Shapeshift tell him it's incorrect and lock his account again. That platform is a steaming pile of fucking shit and has now collected, my friends, personal identity and identifying information and literally won't let him log into his goddamn account with the correct password. So, Shapeshift, go fuck yourself. You are the shadiest, most incompetent fuckwits operating in exchange in this goddamn space. Woo. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a fun time or a good good experience with Shapeshift. I mean, the only thing I could even think of is like, you know, they're doing that uh, revamp of their service. I wonder if they just completely left the old one out in the dust because they said they lost like 90% of their user base with the KYC. And so, I mean, maybe they're just like, well, nobody's using it. So we're just going to let it, you know, fuck all or something. Yeah, let's just chase away the other 10% of users. Fucking retards. Well, 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 I'll say, a, I mean, I'm going to exit the shapeshift discussion now and say, like, uh, my only uh, final thought is, uh, you know, last night I had dinner with Sage and Tracy, uh, the, the couple that we discussed in the past where uh, he had a, 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 a glibostroma tumor and he had it removed and he's been... Um, going through radiation and chemo and he's only got a couple more days of radiation therapy left and, and he's going to continue the chemo. But, uh, him and Tracy are still have a positive attitude and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's tough going, but, uh, they're getting through it and, um, you know, they're pushing along and, uh, I'll just, um, keep updating you guys as, uh, as things move forward with them. And, uh, you know, that's all brought to you basically like that, you know, is through the meetups, like, you know, meeting people here on the ground that are also Bitcoiners that are interested. So, you know, in Bitcoin and share the same values and stuff. So, uh, you know, attend your local Bitcoin meetups. Just your reminder out there. All right. No par. You got a final thought? Yes. Pressure is down. I, I, I think Shinobi's. Shinobi's rants are going to be going to go viral every time on the blog digest testnet. <laughs> Maybe we'll see. All right. Um, yeah. All right. So I guess uh, that wraps it up, guys. Uh, next week will be our last episode uh, of this season. Uh, so we'll have a two week hiatus after that. And I guess uh, keep an eye out on the next few days we will try and get 
that special edition with a local Bitcoins trader out as soon as possible and maybe might try to squeeze another one out before the uh, hiatus for the season end. But on that note, see you guys next Wednesday. Later, everyone. Bye. Bye.